Hey y'all, welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host. Today, we are continuing our conversation about problem plays with a discussion about Timon of Athens. Timon is considered a problem play for a plethora of reasons, but if you look it up on the good old interwebs, the two reasons that come up most frequently are that it is seemingly unfinished, which makes it a little more difficult to put it up on a stage, and that it is hard to kind of figure out what genre it belongs to. People like to say tragedy, but it doesn't always fully fit there. So yeah, that's kind of our introduction to Timon as a problem play. With us here today, we have two guests to talk about the play. I am so excited to have both of them on the show. Our first guest is Jeff Miller. Jeff, do you want to tell the folks at home a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, in addition to being a massive Shakespeare nerd and fan, uh, I am also a professional wrestling trainee uh, and, you know, general actor, director, educator uh, throughout the state of Maryland. Sweet. All right. And then our second guest is Elizabeth Ung. Liz, do you want to tell our friends at home about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Liz. Um, I uh, did a lot of work throughout the DMV area of Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area, um, which is on the Piscataway, Illinois, and Susquehannock lands. Um, and I worked as an actor, writer, director. Uh, I still am. Um, and uh, right now I'm in Oahu, Hawaii, uh, doing my grad school degree <laughs> for some reason. Um, but it's really fun. <laughs> I'm really learning a lot here. I have an interesting relationship with Shakespeare uh, in that I've acted in it. I've directed uh, a few uh, productions. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it's, it's like my most favorite play of Shakespeare, which is interesting. People always give me some interesting looks uh, when I say that, but I'm excited to talk about this. Sweet. Yeah, no, uh, definitely not very many people's favorite play, but I've, I've warmed up to it a little bit recently. So uh, I'm excited to talk about it with both of y'all. Before we get into it, I'm going to get a little high. I don't know if y'all brought any... Have a Good bubble stuff. tea. Yes, bubble tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Um, I just gulp my coffee. I'll just have water. Hell yeah. <laughs> Three hours. So we love water. <laughs> back i am nice and high my friends here are nice and hydrated yes. and we are <laughs> we are ready to talk about timon of athens and i feel like the first big hurdle with this play is that it's one of those shakespeare plays that nobody has ever even heard of they they don't know it exists so my first question is how do you get people to come and see a Shakespeare play that they have never even heard of? Uh, Jeff, do you want to kick us off? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, isn't that always the thing, right? It's, it's you know, you got to really put yourself out there with some of these plays. Um, and I, I really, I think with this play in particular, you kind of have to sell Hyman, right? In this situation is like, this is the, this is the powerhouse actor that we have in this role. It's a great role. Uh, and and come out and see and then also you know kind of whatever it is that you're doing with it um like that's that's kind of the story that you have to tell in your marketing um as opposed to being able to kind of coast on name recognition um the 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 marketing team has to do some some you know heavy lifting uh working with the creative team but i think it's i think it's very doable i mean it, it you know, if you treat it like you would a new work, um, it's about, you know, making sure it, you get a clear story out there of, of uh, what it is that you're trying to say. Cool. Cool. Liz, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I agree with you, Jeff, a lot of a lot of the points you're making. Yeah, the marketing team definitely has to like not just rely on like, you know, a well-known actor. Um, uh, and, and I was going to go into this a little bit, uh, seeing the uh, Shakespeare Theater Company production of Time In right before the pandemic um, was, uh, yeah, like Catherine Hunter was just like so great in that role. Um, I, I think even embracing it as a problem play, uh, like kind of taking the edgy route, I think might like help, you know, depending on your production, you know, I feel like, yeah, let's embrace that, you know, this is a problem play, like nobody's perfect. These are human beings on stage. Uh, they're gonna make mistakes. And even this, you know, even the structure of this play, uh, from the surface level, I think people are just afraid to tackle it. And uh, it because the first half and the second half just juxtapose each other um, in terms of like the mood and like even character. But I feel like uh, embracing that kind of maybe will intrigue people. Um, and also I think making it relevant and uh, I'm a big advocate too of like localizing a play, right? And finding ways to adapt it to the community that you're reaching out to um, is really important. And uh, I know a lot of like Shakespeare purists out there are like, don't cut this play or like, don't like, you know, try to like chop it up and like, you know, paste it. But like, <laughs> I feel like that that is like, that's how you engage a modern audience. And, you know, if you, especially if you want to diversify your audience, if you want to bring in, you know, new eyes and new engagement, you gotta like, you know, you gotta adapt it. You gotta, uh, you know, cut it up a little bit. And, you know, I definitely think if, I, if putting it up on a production, it definitely needs some cutting, but you definitely want that community outreach with it, making it like localizing it and really casting like, uh, you know, certain people of, um, you know, of demographics um, and certain people that, you know, are well known also throughout the community, but that also speak to even current events that even speak to, you know, a certain social issue because the, you know, this, you know, time is full of a lot of social commentary uh really embracing that aspect of it uh so yeah i think this has to be something that is relevant that is contemporary and that is new too in a way and i think people will come to see like oh a new shakespeare play we've never seen awesome i love that i feel like in the macro 
that's kind of what we need to do to get people to come to the theater in general is like connect it back to the community that that theater is serving in the first place. So I, I think that's a great way to get people to come and see this play. So now that we've got them in the theater, how do we get them to stay? Because uh, this is the one play that I have ever left in the middle of the play. Like, I'm I'm not going to say what theater it was at because I generally like their work. Um, but in the middle of the second act, I, I left this play because I was like, oh, this just feels like indulgent Shakespeare and I don't love it. So how do we tackle the second half of this play to keep people engaged? Liz, I'll hand it over to you first. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, maybe little, I really only have seen one production of Tiny Dead, um, so, uh, but I think speaking as like a director or even like as a designer, you gotta have like a strong weaving of themes and, you know, talking about like, you know, the juxtaposition of, you know, even location and the 180 turn that time it takes. There has to be like a through line that connects like what is what is time in the beginning versus how they are at the end. You, and so you got to like somehow pull that in. And, you know, you I, I feel like you would cut it off when time and does officially denounce humanity. Um, and uh, I remember the Shakespeare theater production, you know, it was literally like she burned down the house. And I was like, whoa, she like burned like that in itself is like such a strong statement. So I feel like having, you know, you got to you definitely also have to have some spectacle. But um you know, if you're building up Tymon as somebody that has a certain charisma or attraction and then seeing them crumble, I, I feel like people want would want to stay uh, to kind of see, like, why do they turn that way? Why is it that they, uh, you know, or like, you know, what, what are they going to become at the end? I mean, yeah, it's going to depend on the production. It's going to depend on, like, you know, how director kind of will create that and formulate that into a... Uh, an intriguing second act it's like always that cliffhanger that's got to be you know just right yeah and I think that uh you know visually if we're talking about you know oh that well let me look 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 upon the there's yeah there's got to be like a wall that like opens up and we're in a different place so again teasing that audience or like kind of making the audience be like oh like now we're in a we're technically in a different play now and I feel like you know, that might turn some people off, but um, I, I, using that sort of uh, shock value or like that uh, avant-gardeness of like, okay, we're going to just gonna be in a different area now, um, I think might attract people. You know, I, I think I think very much design-wise and spectacle-wise, you know, might also help blend people in. But yeah, again, also, it also depends on your actor playing time as well. And, um, you know, I talked talked about, again, the sort of really strong choice of having time in as somebody likable, right? As somebody that you, you know is not naive, but is like this optimistic person about humanity at first. You know, it's the person that we all want to be. It's the person that we also find ourselves attracted to because they have such a almost pure view of humanity almost sort of like this is a reciprocal relationship we're establishing with each other like as human beings as you know society this and I feel like you know we want that idealism in our lives and we want the world to work that way 
Um, and then we see the exploitation of that um, and realize, oh man, like we know this is going to turn bad because of all these people just abusing this uh, reciprocal relationship. And so then I feel like in that character, Timon will have to, that, that actor will have to find a way of not just like turning it completely into hatred for humanity, but this sort of heartbreak and then the process of grief, right? The, those processes of grief um, will help, I, I think will help keep engaging the audience. And, you know, the, the rest of the play is like that whole, it, it's in the woods, but if done really carefully and if it's done, if it's done you know, in a very calculated way, you know, you can see the, this process of grief and we can see this sort of uh, catharsis of Timon becoming somebody that, you know, it, even though, the, even if denouncing humanity at first, it, it solidifies at the end. Um, so yeah, you just gotta go strong with it. <laughs> I resonate a lot with both of those things as someone who walked out of a production because I feel like, A, you're right, the like juxtaposition of both of the kind of worlds of the two different acts, it has to be strong. In the production I left, they had all of this crazy tech stuff in the first act. Like they had this big giant LED screen that like introduced characters with their like pictures coming across the screen, like as they would walk on, like it was grand and amazing and then in the second half they stripped the stage of everything and there was just nothing there and I didn't know where we went mm. and that made it very difficult for me to engage with what was going on and then the second thing that made it hard for me to engage with what was going on was that the actor felt like they were indulgent about how they were acting the role like it felt like look at me acting like I'm crazy instead mm. of finding the humanity in that character yeah. so yeah like both of the things that you just said that that strikes me as correct I think I've seen a similar production to the one that you saw at STC but it was the national or not the national uh the Royal Shakespeare. Royal Shakespeare, yeah. Um, it was their version of the same production. And I feel like they did what you just talked about so much better. Like mm -hmm. there was like a trash heap that felt like kind of like a homeless camp almost um, in the second act as compared to like the first act that had a lot of like table imagery mm -hmm. going on. I felt for that time in. So mm -hmm. I, care I cared in that second yeah. act enough yeah. to continue watching so uh jeff yeah. do you have anything to add about the second half of this play yeah absolutely um so you know full disclosure i directed a production of time in of athens back in the summer of 2011 mm -hmm. um and so i was confronted with a lot of these issues um so the way that i approached it the staging that i used uh was the space we were in was kind of this old this old building that had a lot of sort of art deco design to it. Wow. Um, so I had it as a movable production um, with different scenes taking places in the different rooms of the building. Um, and then for the second half of the play, I had the audience literally leave the building and sit on the outside of the building with, with this kind of ru ruined side of the building 
where Tymon was literally outside and couldn't get back in to the party rights that was mm. going on on the inside. Um, so having that sort of very physical change in location, I thought was was particularly useful. Um, secondly, I did a lot of what you had described, Liz, of I rearranged some of the scenes in the second act uh, to, to tell a certain narrative regarding Tymon's friends uh, that, that I thought sort of helped that story flow a little bit better. But I think that's, to me, is part of the key to the second half of the play, is if you let the entire thing be about Tymon, then it's... There's nowhere to go because he doesn't change after like once once he's there, once he's like discarded the humanity, he's that that's kind of where he is. Right. And he's, you know, do, he's he's discovering the misanthropic thing. But it's it's the reflection of his relationship to those people that he used to have a relationship with where we can see where those differences come in. Right. It's, you know, whether it's Appomantis or Flavius or Alcibiades, right? You know, the painter and the poet. Having each of these characters sort of come back in, we kind of use each of them as kind of a measuring stick for where Timon is at that moment. Right. And if you're if your Timon is too big as you kind of described there, Michaela, where it became, where it becomes the Timon show and they sign of wipe out the other actors on the stage, then it's as you describe it, there's nowhere to go, right? It's just, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of an actor ranting <laughs> about humanity. And that's just not, there's no change. It's not interesting to watch. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, as as you described, Liz, it's it's how do we see the humanity? How do we see how far he's fall they've fallen? And I think that comes in in the reactions of the other people coming in of oh wow, this is not the person that we knew and loved. Yeah, I vibe with that. Like, yeah. it's the it's the communal reciprocity that Timon established. And when that stops, I feel like everyone else tries to give back as well, or like, you know, take back or um, find what is this balance again. Um, and, and I agree that like, uh, especially the relationship with Apamantis is so, Apamantis, I don't know. Whatever. Apamantis, the way that Epimantis comes in is that relationship is so strong is so it, it can be this very um even I would even say parental relationship that they have mm -hmm. and for Epimantis to kind of see uh you know I feel like a child of the world a child like they're like they helped raise or they help know the knowledge of the world it's become it's become tainted and I think the play then speaks about the failures that we have about, you know, uh, and this is kind of, you know, a, a, a production that I want to do, but like uh, we, we see a failure of like a community, a failure of a village becoming, you know, it, it kind of uh, embodied in um, who Timon is. So yeah, I think, yeah, it is definitely not just about Timon for sure. It's um, everybody around them. Huh. Yeah. Well, you just brought up uh, a character that, <laughs> I love, I love Appamantis so much. 
he they rock i feel like i've only ever seen them playing played by a woman but i don't think they're written as a woman um so they Appamantis, uh they rock they're a great character and i feel like they very frequently say kind of what the audience is thinking as this story is going on and i feel like that can be both a good and a bad thing because it's fun to have a character like that as an audience member that you can really like sink your teeth into and and love following the story with but it's difficult because i feel like apamantis has the power to turn the audience against timon a little bit and if your apamantis is too good that could ruin the second act of the show so like how do we allow the audience to savor in apamantis but not have our audience find Tymon to be like stupid or naive and not connect with Tymon at all. Jeff, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, I think for me, you have to establish with the sort of needling that goes on um, between the shade that, that Appamantis is throwing, that, uh, that it comes from a place of love, right? It, it has to come from a place of, I want you to be better, right? Like I like you're not seeing what the world is and it's going to hurt you and I I need to help you see that so that you know what happens doesn't happen, right? It's like that's the that's the way that Appamantis knows how to communicate. The way that I staged it in in the production I worked on um was Conceptually, uh, the story was set in the 20s, and Timon was a Gatsby-esque figure, and Appamantis was lower class, like, presumably homeless, right, had lost a lot of money, or, or had felt more at home among the lower class, um, and yet was friends with, like, he's a writer, uh, so he's he's allowed to associate with Tymon and these upper class individuals, but he's not from that. Like he he understands kind of how the world really is, um, and how he sees it. Um, and then once Tymon falls, kind of to Appamantis's level, it's like, well, you know, I told I tried to tell you how it is, and so Tymon's trying to do the Appamantis thing of like, you taught me to rail on humanity and now I'm going to do it. And But Appamantis is like, not like this. Like, this is not this is not <laughs> what I meant. Uh, you know, I think you're taking it too far. But I, I think it, I think by that point, Timon's kind of too far gone um, with it to really be able to hear what Appamantis is saying, which I think is really tragic, right? Is that like, in all of that, all Appamantis wanted to do was help. And now that the worst has come and he's you know trying to help it's like he, he, his brand of helping is is not is not going to do it right it's it's not going to help solve Timon's problems um and so he has to just he has to leave them so sad liz do you have anything you would like to add about that no yeah um yeah and again i agree with like uh, how Jeff approached that and I I think if making it specific right and making this production specific there is this like if Appamantis is like an older person of society I feel like 
this could be easily be about like the ways that intergenerational trauma still persists. Um, and I feel like even uh, for Timon, if again, casting it in a certain way, if Timon was this exception, like this sort of exceptional person in society. Um, in my, you know, in, in my dream production, uh, Timon is like a woman of color, is somebody who's from like this marginalized group, who's made it to the top, who's kind of done this rags to riches thing. And Appamantis is sort of the elder of this marginalized community kind of being like in check with like this younger generation and so that that kind of brings this jaded cynicism into Appamantis' character as like you know come on like don't be this naive like like you know this is this is exactly what this dominant society wants you to think and wants you to do and you know we can comment all day on like the cap capitalism politics and the you know kind of late stage capitalism of this play uh even so um but i think that with you know with then seeing that turn in time and after denouncing humanity it, it is a heartbreak then for Appamantis to see that because, you know, they've tried to, you know, get it to Timon's head. They've tried to, because they, of course they want Timon to succeed. They want Timon to be this better person um, to help, you know, this community, to help the community they're from and they're living in. But uh, then, you know, to kind of, uh, find these shaky foundations just be knocked down by the betrayal of like these friendships. I think for Appamantis, it's uh, it's heartbreaking, and I think for an older generation to see like the younger generation kind of be brought into their perspective of uh, cynicism, their perspective of being jaded. Yeah, it's 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 something like in your face and to heartbreaking. And so for Epimantis, I think, um, yeah, it's kind of like, ooh, yeah, like, yeah, this has gone a little too far. Like, not like, like, don't do it like this. But like, it's complicated, I think, too, just in the way that, you know, we we have expectations of people and um, we project a lot of what we want on them, what we hope that they, you know, they represent a certain aspect of our community in a way. Um, and then to have them fall, to have that fall is like, yeah, particularly like, oh, like maybe we shouldn't you know, raise people to a pedestal, you know, one one monolith, one person to be the monolith. And it just is really uh, sad that way to kind of then see somebody with so much potential just, just fall, just do this kind of, be that fragile and you wonder if you know it's not their personality but it's the community it's just it's the community that helps build that person and to make them be somebody with uh the potential to lead the potential to uh support this community huh. i really love the specificity of that and i also love that like when you zoom out and you look at it from like a more broad perspective, it does seem like the most important aspect of Appamantis's character is like having care for Timon implemented. And that's really beautiful. He um, reminds me in a lot of or they remind me in a lot of ways of Lear's Fool. Huh. Uh-huh. Is uh -huh. is that you Lear's fool can't just be, I'm just going to, I don't like Lear, so I'm going to throw barbs. It's got to be, I I pity you, right? It's, I I need to help you, and this is the way that I know how to help you, right? Yeah. 
yeah, from from the position that I am given, it is kind of the only way I can. Mm. Very interesting. All right. Well, we've got a couple of questions left uh, before I do the big kind of more general one. I'll do a more specific one that Jeff has requested to have asked. Jeff, who do you think this play is about? Okay. So this, the the obvious answer is, is it's about time in, but if you ask me who I think the heart of the play is, I think it's Flavius. Um, I, I think that because Timon is this kind of larger-than-life figure within this story, um, to have that person from the outside that we get to 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 view him with, it allows us to really kind of personalize and track what Timon is going through, right, in a really interesting way. And just the... Gosh, Flavius is one of my favorite characters in Shakespeare. He's just so pure and so good and like really has has such a care for time in. Um, and that we see uh, you know, by the end of the play. And that's that's actually one of the main things that I changed um in in my rearrangement of the scenes in the second half of this play, is that I put I put Flavius's scene with time in last um is as the last moment that we see time in before he goes that he has that last sort of connection with his friend and tells him you know go on get out of here like don't stay with me i'm basically i'll i'm gonna pull you under with me if you stay um so it's it's for me rather than leaving it on a on a sad note of like oh everything was you know he he's been totally corrupted and ruined time and has he has this moment at the end of like yes i've done all the you know everything has been terrible for me but let me at least make it better for you like let let me have one moment of you know if if there's nobody else in humanity right i've i've shunned all of my other old friends all the other people i've interacted with but there's one person in humanity that I can, that I still have feelings about and, and can still have hope for, and it's you. And that, and I think that that gives us a little something, you know, a little bit of hope to end the play on. And, and even if that's not necessarily the, the, the way that Shakespeare intended the, the, the journey of it to go, I think for the story that I wanted to tell, the other part with Flavius was in the movable production, Flavius was the one taking us from room to room as sort of the audience avatar. Um, so being able to kind of follow him all the way to the end, he was the, uh, oh gosh, the character, uh, Nick, it's been a while since I've read Gatsby. Um, he's, he's the author, right? He's the, he's the narrator um, that we kind of follow and and get to see Gatsby slash Timon through his eyes as this is all happening. So, um, yeah. If you ask me, it's a it's it's about Timon. But what's interesting to me is, as I mentioned, the other characters um, and the impact that Timon has on each of their lives and sort of how 
everybody uh, reflects everybody in, in the end. Oh, I love that. I know it's uh, sort of a curveball question, Liz, because you didn't prep for it, but do you have anything else that you want to add to that? No, I, yeah, like, I think Flavius is like a very, uh, I say Flavius. By the way. <laughs> no, please. I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not the arbiter on I, pronunciations. I <laughs> the other thing is like, I hear so many different pronunciations. Uh, just like, whatever, like, like Timon of Athens. And mm-hmm. like, like, anyway, um, <laughs> no, yeah, I, um, you know, yeah, in this, uh, I think, yeah, Flavius, um, yeah, again, talking about like a dream production I want to do. Um, Flavius also has to like carefully casting like all these characters right of different backgrounds of like even their identity I feel like Flavius is also maybe the same background or of the similar lived experience of time in like in terms of like their identity their ethnicity or whatever um but it's in a way that they yes they 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 sort of also idealize and, and um uh, look up to Tymon as this beacon of like they they want them also to do well. Um, but uh, I yeah I think Flavius also then realizes a lot of these things. But again, doesn't really do. I, I don't think they get to Tymon as strongly, or like it's not um, you know as the the actions they take you know. It doesn't reach time in and it's it's also sort of a heartbreak there where they are they're maybe even younger than time of course they're maybe even younger than time in and it is this uh you know maybe the they're gen z right or like time in is this millennial and apomantis is the boomer or something like that but like we have this like age difference and the sort of generational thing happening with uh uh the sort of uh themes that they that they try to um overcome so yeah I, I i definitely can buy that you know flavius is the audience in a way as well just wanting to be a bit of this uh a bit more optimistic than you know um it Apimentus, obviously but um yeah i think flavius it, it could it, it, we can find this focus um where we see maybe the world through flavius's eyes in a way so yeah it's it's almost like Apomantis is able to successfully get through to Tymon in a way that has Tymon uh, emulate Apomantis's behavior. But if that had happened with Flavius instead, like mm-hmm. the outcome might have been better. It's like mm-hmm. Flavius is like, you're so right, Jeff, like so pure, so lovely, but he doesn't get listened to at the beginning of the play and that's like maybe if Timon had started listening a little earlier to that character we'd be good (laughs) um so my last question that I have for the both of you is kind of a double question which is like what does a terrible production of this play look like and what does an excellent like gold standard production look like um as we attempt to produce this problem play in the future um i'm gonna let liz go first because i need to go get the door but okay. i'll be right back <laughs> cool oh. <laughs> oh um i don't know like 
taste is subjective. So, um, you know, what might be bad for one may be, uh, you know, great for another, honestly. Um, I actually talked with like an acquaintance about like the, the same STC production. They did not like it. And I was huh. like, why not? <laughs> and like, you know, they made some kind of good points about it. Um, I guess a bad, I guess uh, if we're talking about maybe standards, uh, a bad production maybe would be keeping all the text. Uh, I don't know, like <laughs> not messing with it and just being like, you know, straight up, you know, let's just do it the way that's written on paper. Um, it's going to be, I feel like, yeah, like that. And also the way that Timon is portrayed in the second half. Yeah, I think if you are very much like, I'm mad the whole fucking time, then, you know, people are going to be turned off um, playing Timon as one note at the end. I don't know. Like, again, it's it's subjective. Uh, uh, I haven't personally seen a bad production. I've heard about bad productions, but um, yeah, I feel like it, it, it goes with any Shakespeare play, honestly, is, yeah, just not uh, not really kind of um, giving vitalizing the play in a way um, that people can relate to or like in a way that is not like gonna be you know reinventing the wheel like we never want to do that either but in a way that speaks to um you know current like current events or that speaks to ways that you know gives voices and uplifts voices to um certain margin marginalized communities as well so yeah, I, it's, uh, yeah, again, like, I don't, I don't know specifically what would make something, <laughs> what would make it bad, in the many ways, obviously, but, um, yeah, uh, I don't know, taste is subjective, I guess. <laughs> I think, I think that's a fair answer. I, uh, as I was prepping for this episode, I was looking up the play, and a review for the production that I walked out of popped up, and it was like, such and such theater breathes life into problem play. So like, <laughs> you know, that reviewer loved that production yeah. and I could not sit through it. <laughs> so <laughs> I agree, taste was definitely subjective. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, the worst thing that you can do with this play is hate it going in if if you yeah. go in and you decide that no it's there i can't fit like there's nothing i can do it's a bad play i just i just have to go through it right and and thinking it's just about the first half you know you're gonna run into uh like oh i only i'm only interested in the first half of this play well there's a whole second part of the play you still have to like unless you just end the play there which you know you're you have a right to do, but <laughs> if you're gonna do the whole thing, you need to you need to care about it, right? And you need to have a reason for it to go to the end. Whereas I think thinking of it as a challenge, right? What are what are the things that are wrong, right? That's that's kind of how I approached it as a director was what are the problems with it and how do I present those as opportunities? Um it doesn't feel like we get a complete picture. Great. Let's not give the audience a complete picture. Let's let them choose their own adventure with what scene they want to go see. And let's have them eavesdrop on a conversation so they don't get the whole conversation. You know, uh, it feels unfinished. Great. Uh, then let's, you know, 
cut cut and paste and rearrange and and you know tell the story that we want to tell with it right and 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 not be precious the language and the precious with the story um and and understand that you know, if you're producing it, it's an opportunity to tell the story that you want to tell. Um, and it's the words are tools um, and the characters are tools that you use to tell your story um, that you don't have to be beholden to what old 400 year white man said <laughs> when he <laughs> discarded this play to go Brain write King Lear. Just Shakespeare that wrote this. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's yeah. not. It's also, you know, Middleton, Middleton right? Or, yeah. uh, <laughs> Right. And it's like, okay, yeah, he probably, you know, he, why, why should, why do we have to be precious about it when clearly Shakespeare wasn't all that precious about it? Um, so yeah, that's, that's my answer is don't be precious about it. Tell your story with it. Um, and then it'll be a production that you want to go see. Amen. Bulls with the Bard is all about fucking with Shakespeare. So <laughs> I love that answer. Um, Awesome. Uh, I am so glad the two of y'all did this. Do either of you have any finishing thoughts you would like to add before we wrap things up? I I would like to be kept in this. It is a dream project of mine. It is a dream production of Shakespeare of mine. Um, and again, like I, yeah, this is this is the hill I will die on. Die on, I guess. Um, within in terms of like this being a favorite of mine because it is complex because it does because it's not easy i feel like you know it, people are like let's do romeo and juliet because it's easy let's do hamlet because it's easy because it's been done a lot and you know i feel like uh, for me like artistically I, I i would feel more accomplished like tackling this play um and you know doing this play in some form or another whether it's directing or acting in it i think it is, um, you know, it, it is something that I feel we want to communicate, and I, I feel like this play has yet to reach, like maybe a, a, a sort of, um, and I'm not trying to make it mainstream either, but like in a way that we're able to connect with it more. We're able to find more reasons to. Um, kind of look at it differently and find different perspectives and persuade people like this is like this is one way of looking at it if you know we are a contemporary art audience in 2023 this is the way that we want to uh we, we want to show perspective and i feel like that communication of this play to an audience to anyone working on a production uh is something i i think i'm i'm happy to help tackle and challenge and um yeah, uh, yeah. Doing again, doing an easy play, like you know, it's great for you know to turn your brain off a little bit. But like doing something that challenges you, that that is challenging, but also artistically fulfilling, um, is yes, always a dream project um, that I hope to do one day. Um, yeah, so it's my biggest spiel. Yeah, I, I I love the play. Would definitely work on it again. I think spending a lot of time with this play has really given me a deep appreciation for all of the problem plays um that i'm i'm so much more interested in how do we it, it feels so much more doable to take 
one of these plays and to to turn it into a story that we want to tell rather than you know taking a well-known story and sort of shoehorning it into a particular like way of doing things right like hamlet on the moon <laughs> you know like yeah <laughs> <laughs> You know, I I think there's the ability to be less precious um and and more adaptable. And, you know, it's 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 kind of a fable, really, like the mm-hmm. the story of time in. And I think that that gives it a really great universal quality to it of like time in could be any marginalized person that's trying to fit in in the dominant culture, right? And that speaks to you know anybody um that that has that those feelings of marginalization and so i think that i would love to see more productions of it um telling all these different kinds of stories that i would love to hear yeah i agree i think that's why i was so excited to talk to both of you about it today was like as i read it for the first time in years a couple of weeks ago and then watched the RSC production, I kept having moments of like, wow, this is really the perfect play for late stage capitalism. <laughs> like <laughs> we are we are living in the dystopia that this play presents the possibility of. And I would love to see more people tackle it and see what people can say with it because the one production of it that I've seen that I liked, I loved. I I was like enthralled by that production. So yeah, I I hope this conversation uh inspires some artists to to pick it up and put it up on a stage. Um Thank you both so much for being on the show. Ooh, Liz, you have something okay. else. Uh, I forgot to plug. Um, I'm also uh, 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 not on topic of time, it, uh, but another That's okay. next production. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to copy and paste this somewhere in the video, but um, I'm also a co-playwright on a Romeo and Juliet adaptation called R slash J at the Strand Theatre Company in Baltimore. Um, we are presenting a new uh, retelling of um, actually my least favorite Shakespeare play, uh, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Um, it, it, it features a fat Juliet and a transgender man, Romeo, and it'll be really exciting. It's gonna premiere in the summer um, and I'm co-playwriting that and collaborating with wonderful queer artists um, on that production. So um, yeah, that's that's also what I'm working on as well. I just wanted to give a shout out to that because it's important. <laughs> Fuck yeah, thank you for doing that. I saw the marketing for that production come out in the last couple of weeks. It looks banging. It's killing me that I'm going to be across the country. Maybe I'll have to yeah, make a I'm little trip. I'm not able to see it either. That sucks. Check it out here in Baltimore uh, in June 2023. Jeff, do you have maybe a kind of sort of problem play you would like to pitch? I, I mean, as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I you know, Henry the Eighth uh, happening at Baltimore Shakespeare Factory. Um, it's gonna be uh, very eclectic uh, in terms of uh, time period. Um, my design inspiration for the show is Bridgerton. Uh, so yeah. if you're if you're a Bridgerton fan, uh, come out and see this one. It's it's funny. 
Uh, it's uh, I think it's irreverent. Uh, it features badass women um, in in some of the best written women in all of the Shakespeare canon. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm very excited about it. It's going to be at St. Mark's um, in Baltimore. Uh, check it out uh, April 14th through the 30th. Awesome. Well, I will make sure that I link to both of those productions in the show notes. Y'all, thank you so much for being on the show. Y'all are good friends of the podcast. I love both of you so much. And I was so happy (laughs) that the two of you volunteered to do this play because I was terrified nobody was going to want to talk about this play with me. I have had such a great time talking with both of y'all. I know we will be back next week, but this is the first play that we have recorded an episode for this season, and I don't know what the order of the plays is going to be, so we'll be back with an episode, but I don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, y'all, for joining, and I'll see you next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Jeff, Liz, and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. If this is your first time listening to Bulls with the Bard and you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps the podcast to grow. And tune in next week as we dig into Measure for Measure with Joan Rob Wilson and Dylan Greenberg. Until then... Bye, y'all. A thousand, thousand sighs to save, oh, lay me where sad true lover never find my grave to weep there.